Welcome to Scientific American's Science Talk, posted on November 20th, 2015. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... I think a lot of the fun stuff has been taken out of the math curriculum, with all the emphasis these days on testing and accountability. I, I want people not just to learn mathematics. I want people to love mathematics. That's Arthur Benjamin. He's the Smallwood Family Professor of Mathematics at Harvey Mudd College in Claremont, California. You may know him from his three TED Talks, which have been viewed more than 10 million times. He's been the editor of Math Horizons magazine, published by the Mathematical Association of America, and he is the author of the new book, The Magic of Math, Solving for X and Figuring Out Why, from Basic Books. He was recently in New York City on a book tour, and we spoke at the Scientific American offices. You talk in the book, you have this one example, there are many fascinating examples in the book that illustrate your point about the magic of math. Mm -hmm. And we should say, you know, this is for Scientific American and your hero was Martin Gardner. Absolutely. Martin Gardner was the original mathemagician and the best. He had a way of explaining mathematical concepts and scientific concepts in a way that was clear and fun and just so engaging and, and inspired thousands of young mathematicians and budding scientists uh, through his writing and books. And all of his stuff is available in our digital archive now. So now that I've gotten that commercial out of it. Well, <laughs> and so appropriate, too. Absolutely. Because right. yeah, you talk about him in the book. Um, one example really jumped out at me. You're talking about a football field. Uh, American football field is 100 yards plus 10 yards for each end zone. The goalposts are at the end of the end zone. So if you tied a, a line, a, a rope, taut from one goalpost to the other goalpost, it would be 360 feet. 120 yards, 360 feet. Right. But then you talk about, if you, you're, you're illustrating a point here, if you add one foot of line to right. the rope. Just a little bit of slack. Right. So the rope is now 361 feet long. Mm -hmm. When it was 360, you couldn't pick it you, up at you, all. You, an ant could not crawl uh, uh, underneath that rope. Right. So now it's 361 feet. Right. And the question in the book is... You go to the 50-yard line and you, and you lift the rope as high as you can. How high can that rope be lifted? Can an, can an ant crawl under it? Could you crawl under it? Could a truck drive under it? How, how much uh, room do you have at that 50-yard line? And before we give the answer away, and some of these concepts we're going to talk about are going to be much easier to visualize if, if you're actually reading the book or if you're sitting there with a sure. pencil and paper and you just scroll, you know, just draw a triangle. But we're making a triangle. Right. When you pull that, we're making two triangles when you pull the rope up. That's right. And, and, and if you think of it, if you, if you pull it straight up, you have two right triangles. Now, just focus on one of those triangles, say from the 50-yard line all the way to, the, to one of the goalposts. Right. right? And it's still, the base of it right. is still... 180 feet. Right. Right? But now the hypotenuse, the diagonal part, is... Let's see. It, it would be not 181, but 
0.5, right? Because it, you had one uh, extra foot that went across the whole football field. Right. So, so you it's have, half of that. So extra you have 180 foot. across, 180.5 on the on the diagonal, the hypotenuse. Even here, you might think that couldn't go very high, could it? And yet. The Pythagorean theorem, one of the most important theorems in mathematics, says that height, let's call that h, has to satisfy h squared plus uh, the base squared plus the base squared, 180 squared, has to equal that 180.5 squared. And when you solve for h, you get something like 13 feet or so. It's a little more than 13 feet. There are a couple of things that came up when when I read that one was that's impossible <laughs> right and then the other was and this is what's so wonderful about math the other thing that came up for me was that's just the way it is there's right. you can't argue with it you can't argue it. it's just it, the the equation is infallible that's right and it has to be true that's the beauty of mathematics it's 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 rarely up for debate things are true or they're not and um you, you rarely have differences of opinions of whether a mathematical f fact is true or not. The other thing that freaked me out about it was then I thought about it, it works just as well if instead of pulling it up, instead of pulling the line up, mm -hmm. you pulled it toward one of the sidelines. You get exactly the same result that the difference between the apex of the of the pulled cord and the middle of the field is now also 13 feet. How about that? Because you could do a... The you, same, it's right. the same right triangle. Right. That's right. And what that means is, let's say some guy takes a kickoff at the end of the end zone, and instead of running right down the field, takes a path that detours 13 feet from the center of the field, and then back, so that he winds up at the other goalpost. He's only added one extra foot hmm. to his to his run. <laughs> And that, that's also so counterintuitive. Right. That's right. Because you saw him 13 feet away from the center of the field, and yet the total length that he, he ran was only one foot longer. Isn't that amazing? I, I Even hearing that, I think that feels it just so feels unintuitive. Wrong, and right? yet, yet that's part of the beauty and pleasure that mathematics can bring, is, is discovering things that, that seem wrong, yet... Are right, and and you and you can understand why they're right and why it happens. And I guarantee anybody out there who doesn't believe it. If you ran the experiment, literally ran it, right? If you literally ran it, it would turn out that that uh, the professor here is correct. Um, you have a similar kind of example in a later chapter where you have a a rope going around the whole planet, right? And then you add just... Like, say, around the equator of the Earth. Right. So let's just round it off. We'll say it's 25,000 miles right. around. And we'll assume a completely spherical, spherical. Earth and flat. There's no mountains and right. water isn't going to change the, exactly. the rope. And then we add 10 feet to the rope. Right. And now how high above the equator, all the way around the planet. Right, so now you, you say, I'm just going to lift that rope up. I'm going to put them on pegs or something so that it hovers around the equator. How high does that, that extra 10 feet of rope? 25,000 miles. 25,000 so miles. 10 feet. Yeah, 10 feet. And, uh, and it's what? It's 10 feet over 2 pi, right. about one and a half feet. Right. You could crawl under that rope. 
again. Just and, by and adding it, the 10 feet. And it's, and it's a, it turns out to be an elementary consequence of the formula for the circumference of a circle. And not only that, it's, pi a, R. it's the same one and a half feet. Really, it doesn't matter what the original that's circumference right. is. Well, that's right. You'd get the same answer if we put the rope around a basketball right. or the sun. The, right. the, 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 the number 25,000 doesn't actually play a role in the answer. Yeah, Again, well, it's paradoxical, right. yet true. It falls, The 25,000 falls out when you actually do the calculations. Exactly. Yeah. So there's a lot of fun stuff in the book. Thank you. Like that. Um, why did you write the book? You know... I think a lot of the fun stuff has been taken out of the math curriculum with all the emphasis these days on testing and accountability. We wind up uh, emphasizing to our students a, a smaller and smaller body of material that's been deemed important. But the problem with that is a lot of the joy has been taken out of that material and some of the material that's just mind-blowing, like the ones we've described, they, they just don't appear anyway. They had to be cut out so as to uh, get make the students master that smaller body material better. And that's unfortunate. Um, and I, I want people not just to learn mathematics. I want people to love mathematics. That's what Martin Gardner's writing did for me. Like, wow, this is cool. People don't become scientists and mathematicians because they got really good at doing the, you know, multiplication of numbers or long division algorithm. You know, that, that, that doesn't excite anybody. Uh, but, uh, but to see these, these surprises and these, uh, these, these things that tickle the brain. That's what be, makes somebody passionate about mathematics and science and problem solving. So my hope is that this will be a book that people will, uh, that they wish they'd had in school, either because it was, um, it, it explained the important stuff clearly and it showed them just fun, bizarre things in, in a magical way, through magic, through humor, through puns, songs. Terrible puns. Thank you. <laughs> Only in with puns do we say it's terrible, it's good. Right, exactly. But yeah, I mean, and that's the, that's the point. Math is fun, and it, 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 it's a serious subject, but it doesn't have to be taught in a deadly serious way. Yeah, early on in the book, uh, you, you're talking about, um, you know, if, if I add 3x to 2x... I get 5x. Right. And so, my father said to me, this was my first algebra lesson. He said, okay, Arthur, what is 5q plus 5q? And I said... 10q. And he said, you're welcome. And right away I said, I'm going to like this book. <laughs> because that's awful and it's great. Yeah. yeah. There was another uh, part of your book. I, I had seen many of these concepts before, obviously, because I went to high school. Sure. But the way you talk about some things makes you think about these concepts differently. And then there were some things that I had never seen. For mm -hmm. example, point nine 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 dot dot dot, which we all know means just you know nine forever infinity yeah. forever equals one. Right. I said, well, no, it doesn't equal one. It <laughs> equals almost one. <laughs> That's right. But then in a couple of quick steps, you prove, no, it does equal one. And I give you five different ways of proving that those two numbers are, are the same. Right. And, and that the mathematicians have important reasons for, for calling those things the same. I mean, maybe the easiest way is if you think of a third, do you agree that a third is point three 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 forever? 
Well, now multiply that by three, and and you'll get three thirds, which is one. But you'd also get point nine 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 forever. So they they are mathematically the same. Yeah, yeah. it's a, it's a little disturbing, uh-huh. but it's also pretty interesting. And at any time infinity gets brought into the equation, and here we have infinity in the form of infinitely many dots, infinitely many nines. Uh, that's when the mathematics gets really interesting and sometimes paradoxical. Yeah, yeah, you can, you know, there, there's a, uh, in mathematics, the commutative law says that A plus B equals B plus A. The, the order in which you add numbers doesn't matter. Well, guess what? If you're adding an infinite number of numbers, the, the, you can get a different total if you add them in a different order. And that's just bizarre, right? That, that the order in which you add the numbers can make a difference as to what the final total is. Right. And that's a little too complicated probably to get into here, but, here, but, but, it's, but it's there. It's and, in there. and I want, I, I mean, and I want this book to be read multiple times and, and, and it's written in, in several different levels. So at any, if at any point you get stuck, I say, just keep on going. I just right. don't want you to stop. You know, there's fun stuff in the, the last chapters in, about infinity because right. you can't go past infinity. I had to stop there. But, uh, and, and, and there's some mind blowing things there. And it also sometimes makes use of things that were learned earlier. And that can sometimes be the motivation to go back and understand the stuff that, that was there earlier. Right. And you I know, took it, your advice. You said, whatever you do, you know, feel free to skip. But read the last chapter. Read the last chapter. Right. You know, and, and, and there's, you know, a lot of stuff that's in like little gray boxes. And I say, you know, you should probably skip those the first time. But maybe the second or third time that you read it, and I hope you do reread it because that's mathematics for you, um, then, then you'll say, oh, I think I'm ready for this now. Maybe now this will make more sense to me. And, and people who are advanced, like many of the Scientific American readers, might find that the gray boxes are their favorite parts of the book and they're ready for it right now. I'm really aiming at a very broad audience from right. people and who are approaching high school level math for the first time to people who've forgotten most of their high school level math. Yeah, I mean, I took my SATs 40 years ago. So, yeah. so you know, if I had to look at those SAT problems again, sure. they would probably be pretty challenging. Mm -hmm. But uh, the stuff in here you know, brought back a lot of, a lot of the thinking. And I was, I was remembering... I really like geometry. I right. thought because geometry, now this is Euclidean geometry, plain geometry. Right, right. You, I, how could you go wrong? You can't go wrong. There are rules. That's right. And, and so you know, you know, if you draw those intersecting lines, you know for sure that the angles on opposite sides are going to be equal. Are going to be equal. That's right. There's no and, way around it. And and Euclid knew that thousands of years ago, and it's just as true today as it was then. I, I've always thought that the the best path towards becoming immortal would be to to discover a new mathematical theorem, and if you can, have it named for you, and then your, your name will be out there forever. Right, like Pythagoras and. Uh... And and Euclid and right. Fermat and Newton and right. Archimedes and Gauss and Euler and well, I was going for thousands of years, so um, you know, two people so far. Yeah, Hero yeah. Um, right. is is makes makes an appearance in the book, but so there's a, another really fascinating uh, example that I, I had never been exposed to, and that's 
you had playing cards and cards and are really always fun for talking about probabilities. Sure. And, and um, you know, anybody who's played any poker, you know the standard order of what beats what. You know, high card, one pair, two pair, three of a kind. Straight, straight flush, flush, full house, full house, four of a kind, and straight flush. Right. But if you add the jokers, the rules go out the window. Well, the and the reason the hands are ranked in the order that they are is they're ranked according to what is harder to be dealt. It's it's much less likely to be dealt four of a kind than it is one pair. Therefore, the four of a kind is worth more than one pair. It's harder to be dealt a flush than it is a straight, and that's why the flush beats the straight. But now if you introduce wild cards into the picture, now you might have a choice of do you use that wild card to be, uh, let's say you have a choice between making your hand two pair or three of a kind. Right. As, as you could if you had a joker. Right. Say you had a pair and two other cards and now the joker comes in. Do you use that joker to match your pair or do you use that joker to match one of the other cards? Well, you're going to do whichever one is the more valuable hand. You know, three of a kind's more valuable. Well, then you'll use it to match the pair. But guess what? By doing it that way, three of a kind's now become more common than two pair. And therefore, they should be less valuable than two pair. But then you could use those jokers in exactly the opposite way. So there's no consistent way of ordering your hands. That that was really uh, amazing to me. Thank you. Um, you begin the book. I'm, I'm sure a lot of people listening, this story about Gauss is one of the most famous stories in the yeah. history of math. But anybody who doesn't know it, should hear it. So why don't you tell it? Okay. So the question. So Gauss, when he was a young boy, uh, his teacher asked the the classroom to add up the numbers from one to a hundred while the teacher presumably was going to take a coffee break. And Gauss immediately gave the answer. Said it's five thousand fifty. Except he said it in German. <laughs> and um, he uh, and the teacher said, "Well, yes, that's right. How did you do that?" And how Gauss probably did it was this. He said, well, imagine the numbers 1 to 100, let's say 1 through 50, written in in one big row from left to right. And then 51 to 100, written beneath it, but write those numbers from right to left. So above the 1, you have a 1, and below that you have a 100. And those numbers add up to 101. Next, you have two, with and underneath that, 99. And those numbers add up to 101. Then 3 plus 98 is 101. Take it all the way to the right, where you have 50 plus 51. That's 101. So Gauss could see that these numbers would w collapsed into 50 pairs of numbers that each added up to 101. And if 5 times 101 is 505, 50 times 101 is 5,050. And that was Gauss's answer. Uh, I mean, Gauss was probably pretty quick at doing mental sums, but he, he, he got that answer not by adding the numbers the way we would, but what Gauss was able to do better than just about any mathematician in history was his ability to make numbers dance and and to 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 see numbers and geometry and algebra in in ways that nobody had seen before he was a, a, a true genius and when he did the um 
the 50-50 example, how old was he? He was probably, I think it was about 10 years old mm-hmm. or so. And he got the attention of of s- some patrons. He, he grew up in a poor family. And these patrons subsidized his education so that he got the mathematical training that he deserved. There's a, there's a really, I think, um, important part of the book. A lot of the book is, is fun and instructive, but there's an important part of the book where you talk about how you can just eyeball some data to know more or less what is possible as an answer. You know, oh, wh- oh, yes. Yeah. So I, I spend a little bit of time talking about mental approximation. And we spend a lot of time in schools teaching students how to get the exact answer. And yet, if I asked a random student or even a random teacher, okay, what do you get when you multiply a four-digit number times a six-digit number? How many digits are in the answer, mm-hmm. right? And People don't know. They can do the go through the algorithm if you give them the numbers, but what's the answer? Well, the answer turns out to be ten digits or nine, because four plus four digits plus six digits is ten digits. And when you multiply numbers, you you get the sum of their digits or one less. How about division? If I take a six-digit number divided by a four-digit number, how big is the answer? Well, it's two digits or three digits. Six minus four is two or one more. So it's two or three digits. That's way more important than knowing what the first answer, uh, first digit of the answer is. Way more important is to know how big is the answer? Is the number in the hundreds or is it in the thousands? There's some very simple rules out there that because we don't really properly emphasize mental math in our school that are not shown to our kids. And that's a practical, practical result. Right. This is the kind of thing that's going to come up if you're shopping and something is 40% off. Sure. You know, you don't have to figure out exactly how much it is, uh, how much the new price is going to be, but you should be able to generally know that, well, if it started out, and I'm going to use really easy numbers here, if it started out at $100 and it's 40% off, you're going to know that it's not less than $50. Right. It's right. still more than $50. It's so important to have an intuitive sense of what the answer should be. Um, and especially when you look at enormous numbers. You know, if something's going to cost tens of billions of dollars, let's say a... a an a, aircraft a, carrier. Right. Well, then, you know, you say, well, what, what, what is that? Well, that's, um, that's 11 digits, right? And you say, and, and, it's, and we're going to divide that by the 300 million people in this country. Okay, so that's nine digits. Well, then that's telling us it's costing every person two digits or three, you know, it's in the order of tens or hundreds of dollars per person. And that, you know, you can take that information for what it's worth. Right. But that's something that you know, people just, they, they see numbers and they tend to close their minds. Right. They just stop thinking. Or they pull out the calculator and if the calculator's not there, well, then they won't think about it. And, right. and I, I'd like people to use their, their minds more. I think you mentioned in the book, but you have a favorite number, just a four-digit integer. Yeah, my favorite four-digit number is 2,520. <laughs> Why is that again? In fact, if you look in the index of the book and you look under my favorite number, instead of a page number, it says 2,520. 
And then underneath it says why, and then I give the page number that'll explain that. But I'll tell you here. Um, as a kid, in fact, it was, it was my favorite number. Um, uh, and, and the reason was is that it was the smallest number that was divisible by all the numbers from 1 through 10. Right, so you, you, know, you look at a number like 60. Well, it's divisible by most of the numbers from 1 through 10, but it's not divisible by 7, say. So 2,520 was the smallest number. And by an amazing coincidence, the house number that I grew up in was 1260, which was half that number. And that's divi- that was divisible by all the numbers from 1 through 10 except for 8. So... um Anyway, that, that, that was, uh, it's okay to have favorite numbers, it right? It is, I mean, right? People it, have favorite colors exactly. and favorite, you know, celebrities. Well, why not favorite numbers? And, you know, everybody has this feeling because everybody loves to watch the car odometer turn when you get to a, a milestone yeah, number. Yeah, So everybody has this strange impulse to have a, a connection to a number, I think. Absolutely. My, my, uh, my older daughter, she was into palindromic numbers. So anytime a, a number would show up and it was a palindrome. Uh, this, this year, for example, on the Hebrew calendar, we just went from the year 5775, a which palindrome. is a palindrome, to 5776, which is a perfect square. Ooh, I know, right? It's 76 squared. 76 times 76 is 5776. And get this, 5776 ends in 76. So not only is it 76 times 76, it ends in 76. And that's the only four-digit number that has that property, that when you take the square root, you get the last two digits of the number. I'm sure there are numerologists out there who have figured out why this means something. It means something, but you know, and it's, but, and it's rare. You won't see this happen again. You won't see a perfect square year in the Hebrew calendar for another 153 years when it's 77 squared, which of course we can now do is 5,929. Or at least you can do that when you read the book. Okay. This is good stuff. You know, um, uh, I remember having a conversation with my mother. Many years ago, and the the clock, it was a digital clock, and it, it came up, it was 1234. Mm-hmm. And she noticed, she said, oh, 1234, that's my favorite, that's my favorite number on the clock. And I was like, that's my favorite number. <laughs> and, you know, we bonded over this wacky affection for this digital clock number. I'm going to tell you something that I just learned Two days ago, and I mean, and I'm, I'm, I'm serious about it. So my, it's not my, in the book. It's not, it's not even in the book. My, um, I wish it was though. I mean, if I could add something, because I, I put my mother's birthday in the book. I create a, I teach you how to create a magic square out of anyone's birthday, and I decide I to celebrate my mother's birthday. And she was born in 1936, and my mother has always had a passion for the number four. Mm-hmm. That was her. Uh, in fact, her email address ends with 44 in it as a way of celebrating n- the number four. Well, as it turns out, 44 squared is 1936. She was born in the only perfect square year of our century, and it happened to be 44 squared, which has always been her favorite two-digit number. And 
I never made that connection. She just made that connection recently and said, why didn't you tell me this? I said, I didn't know until now. This is wonderful. Now, by the way, I am not a numerologist. Right, I, of course. I take, I take all that, yeah, I take yeah. all that stuff, um, you know, in the same way that people will play with the digits of pi and such. I mean, and, and, it, and it's fun to do that. Right. You know, app, you know, we'll celebrate pi day on March 14th and, you know, that's great. But, um, but I, I do worry sometimes that, People will use numbers right. in ways that they're not designed for, for, you know, astrological readings and, and, you know, picking lottery numbers and things like that. And then I think you're actually hurting mathematics a little bit by, um, uh, it's, it's, that's not what numbers were, were meant to do. Um, there's so. a wonderful ending to a Woody Allen short story where he talks about, uh, some numerology where, where people are trying to, uh, decipher the nature of reality by pulling numbers out of the number of letters and certain words in the Bible. Right. And he says, it was logic like this. This is a paraphrase. Unfortunately, uh -huh. I don't have it committed to memory. It was logic like this that led the rabbi to win the daily double 22 days in a row at aqueduct and still lose money. <laughs> so we can, yeah. we can take that for, uh, for what the, what the numerology is actually right. Is actually worth, but we're talking about real mathematics in this book. Absolutely, and uh, it's really fun stuff. And five uh, Q plus five Q. Well, you're welcome. The exact Woody Allen line is: "It was reasoning like this that led Rabbi Yitzhak Ben Levi, the great Jewish mystic, to hit the double at Aqueduct 52 days running and still wind up on relief." That's from his short story, Hasidic Tales, with a guide to their interpretation by the noted scholar. Originally published in The New Yorker in the June 20th, 1970 issue, and reprinted in a collection called Getting Even. And that's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can check out the newly published December issue of the magazine. The cover story is on world-changing ideas. The good ones, too, not the crummy ones. And follow us on Twitter, where you get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.